You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Stalker and Look, it's Grandma. And a warm welcome to our newest Commodores, Casey and Felony Melanie. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Last time, we left off in the immediate aftermath of 25 ships belonging to the Grand Mughal and his family and certain other members of his court after that fleet slipped right past the six pirate ships that had been waiting in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. It was nearly the end of August, 1695, and that fleet was getting away. This was a disaster for the pirates. The fortunes on which they planned to retire, maybe to settle down with a nice Malagasy girl, those fortunes were getting away from them. But it was a disaster for more than just the pirates. Make no mistake, there were other interested parties in this plunder as well. A voyage of this size with six different ships with 450 men and nearly 100 big guns. Well, that kind of thing just doesn't get slapped together out of thin air. These pirates had investors back in America. Those investors included some of the most important men in the North American English colonies, Governor Fletcher of New York. Then there were other governors and lieutenant governors and deputy governors from Massachusetts and Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania, not to mention other rich and powerful men in places like New York City, William Kidd, for example, Frederick Phillips, and all of the men who ran in his social circles. We haven't talked about this in some time, but I want you to remember that this entire voyage 
was predicated on a criminal conspiracy. The pirates themselves certainly had their own motivations, but the foundation of this voyage comes from a plot to circumvent the Royal Africa Company and establish a thriving slave market in New York independent of the company's monopoly. A plot that would require a ton of startup capital, and the pirates were supposed to be bringing that capital back to New York, and now all of that money that was expected was on its way to Surat, leagues ahead of the pirates. The Mughal fleet had the wind in their sails, and the pirates would be hard-pressed if they were to catch them. But they were going to try. This is episode 219, Fatah Muhammad. The very first thing the pirates realized when they set out to the chase was that their months of waiting at sea had taken their toll on their little armada. Once they were all under sail, it became clear that the Dolphin, a brigantine of six guns and sixty men under Captain Richard Wunt, was far too slow to keep up. The crew transferred their guns and then themselves over to Henry Avery's Fancy. Now I told you a couple of weeks ago that Fancy was at their strongest after taking on a French pirate crew. That was wrong. Since that time, They've taken on yet another small French pirate crew and that of the Dolphin. They were nearing, perhaps surpassing, 200 men. That was almost half the strength of the entire fleet. With that bit of business done, the pirates set Dolphin ablaze and opened up their own sails to give chase to the Mughal fleet. According to a one John Dan, one of the pirates on board Fancy, the Pearl, another of the ships in the fleet, was, quote, an ill sailor. Turned out she couldn't keep up either. But they didn't have the time or the space to unload her crew and guns. Instead, Fancy tossed out a rope and tied a tow line between herself and the Pearl. Pearl furled her own sails and was towed behind the Fancy. Now, I've told you more than a few times how fantastic a sailor the fancy was. How fast she was. But look at this. With 200 men, maybe more, on board, with a complement of at this point 52 guns, and now towing a 200-ton brigantine, when every ship in the fleet finally opened up their sails, fancy still outpaced Amity, under Thomas II, and Susanna, under Captain Thomas Wake. Both ships trailed behind the Amity and the Portsmouth Adventure under Captain Joseph Farrow, the only ship in the fleet left that could keep up with Fancy. Which was not ideal. They would want Amity and the Susanna when they finally caught up with the Mughal fleet. But it could have been worse. Fancy and Portsmouth Adventure were the largest ships in the fleet, plus they had a brigantine, the Pearl, attached. When they did catch the Mughal fleet, they could keep any ship there busy while the other two stragglers caught up. Then, together, they could strike. As ready as they would be, the Fancy, the Portsmouth Adventure, and the Pearl leaned into the chase. And I'm sure that this was a nail-biting affair for the pirates, but sea chases tend to take a long time. You know, they have the same winds, after all. Even with a ship as fine as the Fancy, they aren't 
uh, fast-paced car chase. So while the pirates are at the work of chasing down the Mughal fleet, let's take a moment to talk about what they could expect when they did catch up. The world of Islamic ship design is huge. Especially in the Mediterranean, there are hundreds of different types of ships sailed by Muslim sailors. In the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea, and to a lesser extent in Muslim Southeast Asia, there was one overwhelming ship type, the Tao. Essentially, that just means a Latin-rigged vessel, you know, the triangular sails as opposed to the square rig in the West. But just as there are dozens of types and classifications of square-rigged ships, there are dozens of different types of Tao, all the way from tiny little coastal skimmers and fishing boats, all the way up to massive, hulking warships. Nothing, though, that the Muslim world put to sea could compete with the largest ships that Europe did. You know, when we're talking about the capital ships, first-rate ships of the line, those were the biggest and most heavily armed ships in the world. The thing is, though, eastern shipping didn't really have to compete when it came to things like tonnage and guns. There's this distinction between the West and the East in terms of their philosophies of war. In the West, thanks to a myriad of ancient traditions, warfare often took on this character of like a, a strong, bold line standing defiantly against the enemy. Think about Roman heavy infantry, or, or a Viking shield wall, or a wall of pikemen in the early modern world, or the line of ships of the line. You know, they kind of stand there and say, well, come on, I dare you to attack me. But when they did attack, they did so in strength. They did so with, with power. Think of a charge by medieval knights. We're talking about the heaviest cavalry in the world falling on your army and smashing it. In the East, though, things tended to be different. Often they were more subtle in their warfare. You've got these foot archers and hand cannoneers from places like China that were praying that you would line up your troops in a big wall of defiance. They would just rain down death on your big wall of defiance. And then you've got the horse archers like the Huns and the Mongols. Very fast and armed with bows, they could run in and take a bite and get out before any of your heavily armed knights would be able to respond. But in the cultural estuary of the Middle East, we see kind of a blending of these two styles of warfare. They definitely had quick and light units perfect for raiding and adept at guerrilla warfare. But when the time did come for a big decisive charge, well, they might have a host of heavily armed cataphracts waiting to fall on your army. And that combination in styles translated to Muslim naval warfare as well. They had smaller, latine-rigged ships armed with swivel guns that were nimble. They could run in, take a bite, and get away before your giant first-rate ship of the line would be able to turn around and fire on them. 
but then they had a few really big Dao armed with big, heavy guns. Now, these were not as big or heavy as the biggest European ships, but they still got the job done. The type of ship that I'd like to make special note of today is called the Ganja Dao. You may remember this from Thomas II's first voyage to the region. The Ganja Dao was a big ship, not the biggest Dao out there, but still large. And it wasn't exactly a warship. Not a cargo freighter, either. It kind of reminds me of the East Indiamen employed by the East India Company. They were big enough to carry passengers and cargo and soldiers and guns. It was a kind of an all-purpose ship. But they were also traditionally beautiful. The ship's bow would have this ornate carved prow, decorated with spiral patterns and trefoil leaves. They were decorations not totally dissimilar to the mermaids you might see at the prow of a pirate ship. The rear of the ship, the stern, was almost always carved and decorated in even more ornate patterns. If you think of the rear end of a, uh, a galleon, it was very similar. In fact, that design on the galleon probably came from this dhow. And the cannon on board these ships, well, they were superb. There are modern Muslim scholars that will argue, with fairly convincing evidence, that the cannon was actually developed in Syria rather than China. The consensus still seems to be that China came first, and I'm not qualified to comment on that debate, but, you know, maybe it was Syria. They certainly had excellent bronze cannon in Damascus and Constantinople and Jerusalem really early on. Cannon that, all throughout the Middle Ages and even up into the time with which we are concerned today, rivaled and often surpassed the best cannon Europe could produce. And their small arms, well, this period in the Muslim world is defined by the three gunpowder empires. The Ottoman Empire, Safavid Persia, and Mughal India were all conquered with firearms. Now, it could be debated, but I think that the 17th century saw Europe surpass the Muslim world when it came to small arms designs. From about the time of the Thirty Years' War, continental guns just got better and better and more reliable and more accurate and more powerful. The flintlock designs that the pirates were using were probably some of the best designs in the world. Plus, pirates bought their own guns. You know, the army or the navy would supply you with a gun, but... The military was always looking to cut corners, cost-wise. One soldier's life tended to be worth less than the money they would save if, you know, a few guns failed to fire. But those guns would have to be the best in the world. When the pirates caught up with the Mughal fleet and they were closing in, those guns would be put to use. This was not some merchant ship out of Boston that was going to surrender their cod haul. No, they were going to fight with everything they had.
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The chase lasted for ten days. From the Gate of Tears, the pirates set out east into the Gulf of Aden and the Arabian Sea into fully open water. There wasn't a speck of land in sight, and for eight of those days the pirates saw neither land nor even a hint of the fleet. They were moving fast. It was monsoon season at this point, but that means that the Mughal fleet was also moving fast. On the ninth day out, one of the lookouts aboard the Fancy spotted land. And that was very, very bad. Take a look at a map of northwest India, and you'll notice a peninsula that juts out into the sea. It was that peninsula that the lookout had spotted. Were the pirates to sail around the peninsula, into the gulf between it and the rest of India, they would have found the city of Surat, and they would have died. Surat was the destination of the Mughal fleet, and it was the primary naval power base for the Mughal Empire. Now just down the coast was the city of Bombay, today they call it Mumbai, but that at the time was the primary English naval power base in India. This entire region was a heavily militarized zone, there were gunships patrolling the waters and forts at every possible location. If the fleet had already made it into that bay towards Surat, they were home free. Still, though, the pirates were unwilling to give up. They put their heads down and they sailed as hard as they could. They were going to do so until they could no longer sail on with any hope of survival. The following day, the tenth day of the chase, the 7th of September, 1695, still shy to the entrance of the gulf, the fancy spotted sail. There were maybe three or four craft on the horizon, most of them small, but one of them of a good size. Now, the pirates did not know to whom this ship belonged, and really most of the pirates that took part in this raid would probably go the rest of their lives without knowing that information, but I do. His name was Abdul Jafar, and he was a singularly wealthy merchant in Mughal, India. He's one of those men that, when you call him a merchant, you're getting the wrong idea here. Frederick Phillips, for example, or even some of the wealthy nobles in England, well, they would have drooled over this guy's wealth and power. In Enemy of All Mankind, Stephen Johnson quotes one of Jafar's contemporaries as having claimed that he, quote, 
drove a trade equal to that of the East India Company, for I have known him in a year to fit out above twenty sail of ships between three hundred and eight hundred tons. Now that's a bold claim, but remember here that the East India Company was big, but not the behemoth it was about to become. In King of the Pirates, E.T. Fox makes another bold assertion about Abdul Jafar. He tells us that he personally knew Alexander Hamilton. That Alexander Hamilton, the American founding father, the, the guy from the musical. And it's not impossible. Hamilton was, after all, the first secretary of the treasury. He was the founder of the Bank of the United States, and Jafar was really rich. He was so rich that his trade empire was a major player in world affairs all throughout the 18th century. And when you think about it, as an Indian, he would have had good reason to make loans to a newly born country that was offering to poke England in the eye. Plus, that would lighten the military power that England was willing to turn against India while they were dealing with these American rebels. But, I am having trouble verifying that claim. Now, E.T. Fox is usually excellent with the history, so I tend to believe him. But, Alexander Hamilton was 21 years old in 1776. That's when he went to work as an aide-de-camp for General George Washington. For this to be the same Abdul Jafar, who had a world-spanning trade empire in 1685, he would have had to have been very old when he knew Alexander Hamilton, maybe over a hundred. Of course, not impossible, but I'm suspecting that there may have been a son and heir somewhere in there that kind of got lost in translation. But still, it does show us the economic power, the political power, of this trade empire within the Mughal Empire. The very fact that they had four or five ships sailing with the Mughal's fleet should tell us something, a, a testament to his influence and Henry Every was about to capture one of those ships, the Fateh Muhammad. In English, literally, the Conqueror Muhammad. And I should note that Fateh Muhammad may not be the correct name for the ship, giving regional variations in dialects in the Mughal Empire. It may have been something more like Fateh Muhammundi, but the traditional name given is the Fateh Muhammad. And she was a good prize. See, Fateh Muhammad was a merchant ship, not a pilgrim vessel. Instead of a host of people prepared to worship at Mecca, it was filled with men who were there to trade. The Fateh Muhammad was full of rich goods and all of the proceeds of their trade. The reason she sailed with the larger fleet was for protection. But here, so close to home... She apparently believed that she no longer required that protection, and she was wrong. The Fatih Muhammad and her retinue had broken off from the main convoy of the Mughal fleet. Probably they were sailing for a different destination than Surat. With this prize in his spyglass, Every ordered the fancy to detach the pearl and to sail on hard, to sail past the convoy, and then to lie in wait. Meanwhile, 
Portsmouth Adventure and the Pearl would continue the pursuit. They would chase the convoy down right into Every's claws. All that night, the three pirate ships worked hard to get into position. At dawn, on the 8th of September, 1695, the sea just off the Indian coast was quiet. It was coated in a thick mist. The kind of mist that muted any but the loudest sounds, even those aboard your own ship. The kind of mist that made it impossible to see much past your own deck. Joseph Pharaoh and William Mason, with the last known position of Fateh Muhammad in their minds, moved cautiously through the fog. It's always sudden when a ship appears out of a dense mist, and this was no different. The small convoy of Muslim ships seemed to appear suddenly, shockingly, and they were very close to the pirates. But if the pirates were surprised, Fateh Muhammad was more so, and frightened. Two ships, clearly Europeans, appeared out of nowhere, less than a hundred paces away. I can, I can hardly imagine what that's like. And the Portsmouth Adventure fired off a single shot, a single thunderous explosion that broke the early morning quiet. A couple of heartbeats later, the ball fell into the water mere feet away from the Fateh Muhammad. Like a signal, the pirates aboard Portsmouth Adventure and the Pearl began to scream and curse at their prey. They brandished their sabers and their muskets and their pistols. They made a terrifying sight. It was the kind of thing from which any sane man would run. And the captain of the Fata Muhammad was a sane man. And run he did. Despite the dense fog, Fateh Muhammad ran away from the two pirate ships, right into the jaws of a third. That shot from the Portsmouth Adventure probably never was intended to hit Fateh Muhammad. Rather, it was intended to frighten the Muslim ship and to give a signal to Henry Every, and he had certainly heard it. Every put his crew into motion, they loaded the guns, they raised anchor, and then they waited, they listened and stared into the dense fog. And then, of a sudden, there she was, the triangular sails of the Fateh Muhammad burst into view very nearby. One of the lookouts aboard Fancy, that man Dunn that we quoted earlier, he would tell the court that she was, quote, within about a pistol shot of Fancy. Now, exactly what happened next is difficult to say. There are differing accounts, and we don't have an account of the captain of Fateh Muhammad. We do know, though, that almost as soon as she emerged from the fog, as soon as she saw the fancy, Fateh Muhammad fired off a broadside. And somehow, and exactly what that how is, somehow, she missed. If I were to try and distill those different versions of events, and try to make an educated guess, I might paint a picture something like this. Fateh Muhammad carried six guns on her. They had swivel guns as well, but six big guns. When she ran from Portsmouth Adventure and the Pearl, the captain may have ordered the guns on one side of his ship readied for action, had them loaded and primed, had them ready to fire. His plan may have been to run, but then when the time was right, when his convoy was ready, to turn 
and open fire with all of his ships on the incoming pirates. They would have had to hit something, and at that point they would have been in a better situation to fight. But as they were running, out of the fog appeared a behemoth. Fateh Muhammad was a big ship as far as the Dows went, but Fancy was larger. She was imposing. She was terrifying. I suspect that when she appeared out of the fog, that the crew of Fateh Muhammad, or maybe the captain, panicked and fired off a broadside. Guns that had already been readied, but that were prepared to fight a ship coming from the other direction. That broadside flew out into empty water. It did, though, surprise the hell out of the fancy. That a ship like this would fire back at all was a surprise, but that she did so almost immediately, like, boom, here's this ship and now they're shooting. There was a worry that they may have been dealing with a very crack crew. Now, there are differing events of what follows here as well, but I'm going to deal with the one I like more. Portsmouth Adventure and the Fancy drew up on either side of Fateh Muhammad, and with their small arms they opened fire. Now, this was an odd era in piracy. It's kind of a blend of the later era of men like Blackbeard, pirates who had six or eight or ten pistols strapped across their chest. But it's also still got some of that buccaneer era where they had musket fire, it was probably the fire that the two pirate vessels rained down on Fateh Muhammad, probably a blend of both. Muskets for the sharpshooters and pistols for closer range work, with the odd swivel gun thrown in, not to mention the blunderbuss. While the pirates were firing as fast as they could reload, they threw grappling hooks across the water, and each ship pulled on the Fateh Muhammad, moving their own ship in close. Now, they had the high ground when they were aboard their pirate ships, but you can't take another vessel from your own deck. Once they were in close enough, the pirates grabbed ropes and swung over to the enemy ship into a brutal fight. The crew of Fateh Muhammad had plenty of guns of their own, and the first men who landed on deck fell to hot iron ripping through their flesh. But those guns did take a minute to reload, and more pirates were swinging across all the time. Soon enough, the guns were dropped, and it turned to a fight of swords. Relatively thin English and French naval cutlasses clashed with the thick, heavy-bladed Muslim scimitar. Soon, every man was fighting, struggling for purchase on a blood-stained deck. Then, all of a sudden... As the last few sailors fell to pirate blades, the pirates realized that they held the deck. It seemed maybe like victory, but the fight wasn't over. The crew of the Fateh Muhammad had fallen back. They reloaded their guns, and they took cover in the holds below deck. They forced the pirates to venture below, and at every twist and turn inside the guts of the dhow, the pirates faced a hail of gunfire. Two hours of slow, methodical hunting followed in the darkness of the ship's interior. It must have been a terrifying experience, and a lot of pirates were wounded and died. But more of the Fateh Muhammad's men died. When those two hours were up, she was clear of men resisting the pirates. 
they were all dead or captured. It shocked the pirates a bit that the crew had fought as hard as they did. Now, there were a couple of good reasons for that. First, Abdul Jafar hated pirates. He'd had run-ins with them before, most notably in 1691. Now, that actually turns out to have been a Dutch crew, but he couldn't tell the difference. Abdul Jafar assumed that the pirates were English and that the English, all of them, were pirates. He'd lost the goods in that ship and held a bit of a grudge. He ordered the men who sailed under him to fight with everything they had should they be boarded by pirates, and they did. The other reason, though, that they fought so hard was the cargo. Fateh Muhammad was chock-full of precious metal. Silver and gold, and nearly all of it coined, lay in chests that littered every hold and cabin on the ship. The pirates were stumbling over new hordes of wealth every time they turned around. At the time, the value of the hard specie alone, so not counting the cargo, just the coins, was estimated to be around 60,000 pounds. Translated into modern currency, that's about 5 million modern American dollars, or 4.2 million euro. Which sounds like a lot of money, and I mean it is, but not enough money. If they divided this haul between all 400 pirates, it would equal somewhere around $12,500 each, modern money. Now, at the time, in a place like, say, America, that would have been enough to buy some land and a house and a horse and some tools and some seeds and basically everything you might need to start a farm and build a small family, which might have been enough for some of the men, but most of them were not here in the Arabian Sea so they could go be farmers. Once they'd counted all the loot, the crew sat down to a council, and they decided that this was good, but it could be better. They elected to sail on, hunting for more and, hopefully, richer prizes. Next time, The Gun's Way. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who's signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Anyone who has left us ratings or reviews or recommended the show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. I'd also like to inaugurate an honorary patron class. We've had a lot of artists help us out here on the Pirate History Podcast, which is great because if I was doing the art, well, it would have been terrible and everybody would have judged a book by its cover and nobody would listen to me talk about pirates. So this week I'd like to give special thanks to Drew, who did our Pirate History Podcast map, Hugh, who designed our logo, Bridget, who gave us a number of wonderful t-shirt designs, Pirate Moonson, who did our pirate Rosie the Riveter, and Camille, most recently, who did an amazing pirate skeleton recording a podcast. I'd also like to suggest to all of you out there to check out the website of one of our Commodores, Hefei. He's got a website called thisdateinpiratehistory.com. I'm impressed and flabbergasted at the amount of work that must go into something like that. 
Most recently, you've got posts about Ned Lowe, Francis Drake Howell Davis, and Black Bart Roberts. Go check it out. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.